The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in Acts chapter 16. And we'll begin in verse 6 and read to the end of the chapter. Acts 16 is a chapter that discusses Paul's ministry to the Philippians. Again, we'll begin reading in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you would judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Then when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. The jailer called 
for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set foot before them, set food before them. And rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. And they've thrown us into prison. And did they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Again, Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we might know you, that we might have some means of understanding why the world functions the way it does, that we might know what your will is for us and what your will is not, that we might not sin against you and that we might live according to your purpose and function according to the way that you've designed us to function. But Lord, especially as Christians, we want to be in your will. Lord, we don't, we don't know or understand as much as we would like. But we do know we can trust you. And I pray that you would solidify our trust in you through your word this morning. Give us understanding and give us instruction to know how we might live according to it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus first commissioned his disciples to go into the, the surrounding countryside and to preach the gospel. He gave them these words in Matthew chapter 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now given that, that they were being sent out as ambassadors, as servants of the sovereign God of the universe. You would suppose that Jesus would make things easier on them. Instead he says he's sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So Jesus does not make following him or even serving him easy or safe. That fact brought to mind Evan Burns, the missionary we support in Southeast Asia, who after committing to, to serve as 
Lord overseas. Had his, his wife contracted uh, malaria, and then after that, when COVID hit, his wife of, of just really 10 years uh, died. It required him to increase his load by being a single father, trying to homeschool his two boys on top of all the other massive responsibilities he had. And then just a few months after he lost his wife, he found out from some of the institutions he served that they were cutting his programs because they no longer wanted to support those missions programs and required him, therefore, to lose great financial support. Not only him, but other missionaries we support, the farmers, after they committed to serve God in the mission field, uh, to bring the gospel to unreached people groups, people who had never heard the gospel before, where there wasn't any known believers amongst them, they found out their oldest child had a, a deadly heart problem and wasn't expected to live beyond her teens. Uh, to this day, she is still alive by God's grace. And then a few uh, years after that, their youngest child was born with Down syndrome, which would require them to have extra, he needed extra care and extra assistance, uh, which would, again, diminish the amount of time that they wanted to devote to the various needs on the mission field. And then just a few weeks ago, their partner on the mission field was exposed to, his, to have uh, failed morally and was required to return, which brought deep shock and destruction to the team, the small team of missions workers in, their, in that people group. Again, they have, they've given up everything, family, friends, comforts, to serve the Lord on the mission field. And you would think that because they're seeking to do God's will, that God was going to make it easier for them. But instead, what's actually happened is it's, it just seemed like one trial after another trial after another trial. Again, it just shows Jesus does not make following him easy. Nor does he promise it's going to be safe. In fact, he suggests it's going to be the opposite. And we've seen this to be the case throughout the book of Acts from the birth of the church. But it's especially evident here in chapter 16, which records Paul's ministry to the Philippians. And four themes reverberate through this section that you'll see. Prayer, preaching, power, supernatural power, persecution. And then on account of all those, we see gospel progress. Right? We see how God uses the first four, prayer, preaching, persecution, and power, to bring about the fifth, which is the advancement of the gospel, progress. Simple outline to this chapter. It begins with the summons of the missionaries to Philippi, and then later the salvation of Lydia and her house, and then finally the salvation of the jailer and his house. Let's look first of all at that summons to Philippi. Now, after adding Timothy to their team at Lystra, uh, they also, um, not surprisingly, decide that they want to make inroads for the gospel in other regions. But what is surprising is that it says the Holy Spirit hindered them from making gospel advancement into Asia. 
Uh, he's described as the Holy Spirit in verse 6, and then the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7. And same person, Luke probably does this to show that Jesus, again, as the head of the church, which was established in Acts 1, is still leading the church, again, through his Spirit. Now, we're not told why the Holy Spirit forbade them to enter Asia and Bithynia, but presumably it's because God wants them to go to Macedonia. Because in verse 9, it says, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And based upon this vision, Paul shares it with the other missionaries on his team, and they conclude, okay, we should go to Macedonia. Holy Spirit, shut the doors for us in Asia. Let's go to Macedonia. Now, you also might n- note the small change in the grammar of verse 10. It switches from the third person to the first person. In other words, Luke, again, who's the author of the book of Acts, is saying he's adding himself to this team. So this is when Luke joins the group of missionaries. And so they now consist of at least four people. Paul, Silas, they picked up Timothy in the previous chapter, and now Luke. And the four decide to set sail across the Aegean to Macedonia. And they come to the city of Philippi. Brings us to verse 11. It says, after they arrive in Macedonia, they they travel quickly through Neapolis. And having decided to focus their efforts on Philippi, which is the leading city in the region, uh, it was a region, um, it was the Roman colony within that region, I want to say. And Philippi actually became a Roman colony after a great battle, if you, you might remember from your Roman history, uh, the second triumvirate, which was led by Octavius, who later becomes Augustus, was fighting against the murderers of Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius. And uh, the second triumvirate under Octavius won a decisive battle here at Philippi in 42 BC. And to memorialize the victory, Octavius named the city as a Roman colony, which was significant because it gave them privileges of Roman citizenship, such as freedom from scourging, freedom from arrest, except in extreme cases. And it also gave them the right to appeal to an emperor if they thought they had been arrested unjustly. So the Philippians actually took great pride in their status as Romans. In fact, it's what uh, the crowds, the, the, the men used to incite the crowds against the missionaries later on. But it's also what terrifies the magistrates when they find out that they'd beaten Paul and Silas, who were Roman citizens. They understood the significance of that. So this is a big deal to the Philippians, their Roman citizenship. And we'll see that in this, in this text. So after the missionaries arrive in Philippi, They have to determine what strategy they're going to employ. Because in all the other places they'd gone to, the strategy they used would, they would go to a synagogue. And because they were rabbis, they would often be given the opportunity to teach. And in teaching, they would then preach Christ from the Old Testament, showing how the Old Testament foretold who the Messiah would be. But if there's no synagogue in Philippi, in fact, there's very few Jews. And so they need to determine how they're going to reach these people. Well, for whatever reason, they decide that they're going to try and 
seek some Jews by a little enclosure outside the city gate by a river. And it turns out to be the right place because they come upon a number of women who are worshipers of Yahweh. And they actually gather there every Sabbath for prayer. Because these women faithfully gathered together and prayed for the Lord's help, it's actually on this day that God answers their prayers. And this explains why the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go into Asia. Because these women had been pleading with God to send people to come over and help them. That man in the Macedonian vision happens to be a group of women. And God has answered their fervent prayers. And he redirected the path of the Apostle Paul from a whole region to come minister to them. It reminds us of Luke chapter 11. Flip in your Bibles, you're familiar with this text, but well worth remembering. Beginning in verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And he explains why. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The point is, don't doubt the immense power of prayer. This is, along with the Word, this is one of the main means that God uses to bring about His purposes. And we want to see God work in the world God says He works through our prayers. John Piper writes, God has established prayer as the means by which we receive His supernatural help. And without supernatural help, we cannot live a life worthy of the gospel. Everything that distinguishes Christians from the world in a Christ-exalting way is a work of God's supernatural grace. And God has ordained that this grace flows to us Through prayer. It's a means of grace. That's why prayer must be central, not peripheral, in our lives and families and ministries. Consider also the words of the great missionary Adoniram Judson. He says, nothing is impossible to industry, said one of the seven sages of Greece. Let's change that word industry for persevering prayer. And then the model will be more Christian and more worthy of universal adoption. He says, I'm persuaded that we are all the more deficient in a spirit of prayer than in any other grace. God loves importunate prayer so much that he will not give us much blessing without it. And the reason that he loves such prayer is that he loves us and knows that it's a necessary preparation for our receiving the richest blessings which He is waiting and longing to bestow. I never prayed sincerely and earnestly for anything, but it came at some time. No matter at how distant a day, somehow, in some shape, probably the last I would have devised, 
it came. Those are the words of a man, if you're familiar with his story, who suffered immensely on the mission field, but produced amazing fruit amongst the Burmans. Again, if we don't pray, we shouldn't expect any progress. But when we do pray, we can have confidence that God somehow, He will answer our prayers. We can pray with confidence. And even though these missionaries only had a small audience made up of a few women, it it was enough for the missionaries. And so they, they sit down and they begin to preach the gospel to them. The word spoke that's used there in verse 13, it's a general term. It just means to, to speak, really. But it's frequently used in reference to preaching. A couple texts on the slides there. Matthew 26, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, it's the same word, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And there's a number of other texts that are mentioned there. Mark 2, Hebrews 2, Acts 17, where this word to speak is used in reference to preach. And then the word spoke that's used there, or sorry, the word uh, to, um, yeah, the word spoke, again, it means preaching. Now that reality, coupled with the fact that it says they sat down, indicates that they were engaged in public speaking. Again, today we stand up when we do public speaking. That's why I'm standing right now and you are sitting. But in the ancient world, typically the audience would stand up and the teacher would sit. And we see this frequently in the Gospels. When Jesus, like in the Sermon on the Mount, says he went up on a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. In numerous other times when Jesus would teach, he would teach by sitting down. Sitting down signaled that he was going to teach them something. And that's, of course, what's happening here with these women. They're not merely having gospel conversations with these women. They're preaching the gospel and teaching. And the fact that Luke uses the first person plural, it implies that each of the four, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and even Luke, were sharing the gospel in turn with them. And Paul being the chief speaker. And then in verse 14, Luke highlights the responsiveness of one of the women, namely Lydia. Luke tells us that she was from Thyatira, which was one of the seven churches that had letters written to them by Christ in the book of Revelation, the beginning of that book. We're told that she's a merchant, a seller of purple goods. The fact that her husband isn't mentioned uh, suggests that uh, she was probably a widow. And she had run this business on her own. Uh, she was, again, because she was from Thyatira, she had probably uh, received um, uh, teaching in the scriptures because there was a large Jewish contingent there in Thyatira. Um, and so she had become a, a God-fearer, is the, what, the, what the word is sometimes translated. Uh, she was a proselyte to Judaism. But when she hears the message proclaimed by Paul that God had fulfilled his promise of a Messiah through Jesus Christ, it says the Lord opened her heart and she believed. And then she shows her belief by getting baptized. 
Again, it shows that once again, baptism was the way a person demonstrated their desire to follow Christ in the ancient world. They didn't sign a card. They didn't walk an aisle. They didn't raise a hand with every eye closed, every head bowed. They didn't throw a pine cone into a fire. When a person showed that they wanted to follow Christ, they didn't ask Jesus into their heart. They got baptized to show, to to demonstrate they believed that because Christ died and rose again on their behalf, they too would would have died to themselves and and are living for him now. And even after the service today, we're going to have a baptism to celebrate that very reality. Now notice it wasn't just Lydia, but her entire household also expresses a desire to follow Christ through baptism. And then Lydia also expresses her, her faithfulness by pleading with the missionaries to come to her house and let her take, take care of them. She prevails upon them, it says. I mean, this is a remarkable expression of hospitality. You can just think of it. She has just met these men. Four strange men. Single woman. Now she had other people within her household, but she's inviting them to stay. She doesn't know them. And in fact, the word hospitality, we tend to think of hospitality as inviting our friends and, uh, friends and family over for a Super Bowl party or something, or just to hang out after church. Though the word itself means, literally, a lover of strangers. It's to take care of people who have a need that you don't, you don't know at all, but you want to take care of them because you love them. And you want to provide for their needs. Well, a great expression of this by Lydia. So her household is saved and she's saved. This brings us to the salvation of the jailer in his house in verse 16. Now at some point in time during their time at Philippi, the group of Christians returns to the place of prayer. And as they're going there, a, a slave girl who had been possessed by a demon that gave her the power to tell fortunes uh, was harassing Paul. And she says... Uh, she was crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And it says she kept this up for many days. And at some point, Paul just got fed up with it. And he turns to the woman and he casts the demon out of her just by speaking. And it says it departed from her immediately, showing again the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit within Paul. And although this brought some relief to the believers... And certainly it brought relief to the girl herself. In the long run, it actually brought more pain upon the missionaries. At least physical pain. It says in verse 19, When her owners saw that their hope of pain, sorry, of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And then they falsely accuse these missionaries of advocating anti-Roman customs. They say they're disturbing the city. You know, why would they say they're advocating anti-Roman customs? Well, because for the crowds, their Roman citizenship meant everything to them. That was their identity. So they're, they're, they're trying to get the crowds stirred up against them. And it works. So the magistrates, who should have enacted justice, didn't. They tear their clothes off them and they start to have them beaten. And again, Paul and Silas had done nothing offensive. 
except cast a demon out of somebody. That's all they've done. It's totally unjust. They were beaten by the authorities and thrown in jail. But what's even more important for us to notice is that God allowed this to happen. And God will frequently allow His people to face injustice, oppression, even torture. And rarely, rarely are we ever going to understand why. Sometimes we do. Clarity is brought, but rarely. Somehow, he uses such evil for good. As we sang earlier, his purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Now, what's remarkable is that after being beaten, thrown in jail, again, they don't know if this is it. They don't know if they're going to have another hour. They don't know if the jailer is going to come in the next day and just beat them some more. They don't know what the next minutes or hours or days have in store for them. And yet, despite that uncertainty, and despite that the last thing they experienced was being beaten severely, says they're singing songs and praying at midnight. They're singing and praying at midnight. Now, at midnight, I'm asleep usually. But they just want to pour out their heart to God. It shows their confidence in the sovereignty of God and their conviction that somehow He's going to use the situation for good. And then you'll notice in verse 25, Luke mentions that the prisoners were listening to them. Now, this might explain that after the earthquake hits and the the Chains fell off and the doors are open. That none of the prisoners flee, though they have the opportunity to. But they stay. We know nobody flees because if the jailer lost any of them, his life would have been forfeit. That's why he's planning on killing himself. But he doesn't. He doesn't kill himself because Paul assures him that all the prisoners are there. Verse 28. Again, somehow the prisoners must have realized that this was an act of God. Maybe a direct answer to Paul and Silas's prayers. And so they choose to follow the leadership of Paul and remain in jail. Again, so it's, it's quite likely that not only were these prisoners listening to them sing and pray, but their hearts were affected to the extent that, that quite possibly some of these prisoners were saved through their example. How they responded to their oppression. They didn't grumble and complain and whine and demand their rights. They sang and they prayed. And it had a deep impact on both the prisoners and this this jailer. And the apostles are modeling the right response we are to have as Christians towards suffering and oppression. Peter advocates this in 1 Peter chapter 4. We read this earlier for our scripture reading. And actually in the community group that meets on Thursdays, Dan taught us through this passage just this week. Beginning of verse 13, Peter writes, But rejoice, rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
And we're supposed to rejoice. Not to worry, not to grumble, not to get angry. We're supposed to rejoice. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, Peter's logic there at the very end is, the reason you want, to, you want to suffer well, you want to rejoice, you want to entrust your soul to God, is because unbelievers are watching. And if it's hard for you to endure suffering, just remember what anybody who dies outside of Christ will face for all eternity. There is no amount of suffering you, believer, can go through that is anything close to what unbelievers are suffering if they're outside of Christ and they die. That's the perspective we're supposed to We rejoice in the midst of suffering because we want to give unbelievers hope. Because unless they receive that hope, they will suffer for eternity. What is light momentary affliction compared to that? And just imagine that, that, that your example, brothers and sisters, might be the very thing that saves one person from an eternity of suffering. That's what you have to have on your mind when it hits. Love people. Don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on the pain. Don't focus on the fear. Don't focus on the loss. Focus on the desperate need of unbelievers to trust in Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is what's going to give you the ability to endure. And that's why Peter tells us this. But those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because these missionaries choose to do what's good and not ignominiously run, God opens the door for an entire household to come to faith in Christ. See, when the jailer discovers that none of the prisoners have fled, despite having ample opportunity, he has one question for Paul and Silas. This is stunning. To sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, there was probably a lot more to the conversation that had taken place for him to even ask that question. Maybe he heard Paul and Bar- Silas say something when uh, they were being imprisoned. Maybe it was through the testimony of some of the other prisoners. Maybe it was after he ran in the jail and saw that everybody was there. Somehow he knew that Paul and Silas were there because they had good news to offer. And they weren't going to run from an opportunity to share the good news. And so he takes the opportunity, tell me, how can I be saved? And the missionaries answer his question in verse 30. Believe in the Lord Jesus, 
and you will be saved. You and your household. That's it. And if you're outside of Christ today, just know that's all you need to do. And you can be saved from the wrath of God that you rightly deserve. You just need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then Paul and Silas say, and your household. The missionaries, again, emphasize that their household could be saved. That that word, you look at it there, house, sometimes it's translated household. Uh, it's the word oikos. It's the main word in this chapter. It comes up six times. That's remarkable. There's a lot of text that's left out. Like we want to know, well, how did the jailer know that Paul and Silas were there to preach the gospel? I mean, how did they know that they should go to the riverside? There's so many things in this text that Luke just doesn't explain. But then he emphasizes house, household, house, household. Why? What's the point? Well, I think the reason for the emphasis is that Luke wants us to see here that God is building up his house, a new household, through the preaching of the gospel. In fact, turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul addresses this beautifully, and it helps you understand what's going on here in the book of Acts. He says this in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, a household for God by the Spirit. It's the same word that's used there, oikos. God is building a new house for himself that we call the church. And it's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And God has brought... Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to Philippi to begin building that house, primarily of Gentiles. And like Lydia, the Philippian jailer and his entire household are baptized. And then after that, he, he also hospitably invites them to his house to eat a meal together. You have a baptism, and then everybody gathers together and shares a meal and then they rejoice in the goodness of God because this jailer has believed. They're, they're, they're dwelling together as a family. That's, what this is being, that's what's being conveyed here, a new house. And again, remember when the missionaries showed up to Philippi, there was no synagogue there. There was no house of worship. It was just a scattered group of people. And now God is beginning to build a house of worship. But it's not brick and mortar. It's a house built of souls. And it's in these houses where these souls gather that they break bread together. They listen to the teaching of the word of God together, which is emphasized here with the jailer as well. And they rejoice together. Again, the point is God is building his church. But then shortly thereafter, the missionaries stint in Philippi ends pretty abruptly. Because the magistrates come to 
the jail and they, they ask the missionaries to leave. Remarkably, though, Paul wants to make an issue of it. Now, he didn't make an issue of his Roman citizenship when he was getting beaten. Nor after he got thrown in jail. Why is it that Paul now wants to bring up the fact that they had beaten Roman citizens? Well, I think he's making a point of the issue of their injustice. He says in verse 37, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who were Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come and themselves and take us out. So why does he make an issue of it here? I mean, they are free to go. They've been judged not guilty, so to speak. Again, he wants to make the injustice clear. He doesn't want to simply leave. Because then somebody might wonder, well, maybe they did do something wrong. Maybe these, these Christians are teaching anti-Roman things. And maybe it's going to set a precedent for injustice to come upon the church this small fledgling church in the future. See, Paul's looking forward to the fact that unless he stands up for their rights, the rights of, not his rights, but especially the rights of these other Philippians, they too might get taken advantage of. And he doesn't want to convey that he's leaving with suspicion and shame because those things could lead to further persecution for the church. And remarkably, the magistrates acknowledge their wrongdoing and they apologize. But they still request the missionaries to depart. Presumably because they just don't want any more crowd disturbances. And remarkably, the missionaries do agree to go. They agree to go. Even though there's a, a brand new church that could really use their assistance. And maybe one of the reasons they agree to go is because Luke stays behind. We know Luke stays behind because then again, at the end of the chapter, it reverts back to the third person. And Luke begins to describe what they did, meaning he must have stayed here in Philippi. But it also shows their willingness to submit, again, to unjust authorities. They're not, they're not trying to be anti-Philippian government, anti-magistrate. They just want the freedom to share the gospel. And they want to make sure the people they're caring for who believe in Christ are protected. And the missionaries, again, they just, after visiting with Lydia, they, they feel compelled to move on to another city in Macedonia. But if you think, the, think about it. The, the, the missionaries just had a whirlwind of events as, you know, over the few days that they were at Philippi. Again, they showed up. They didn't know what to do. God leads them to a group of women. They bring Lydia and her house to Christ. They, get, they cast out a demon, uh, possibly saving that, that girl who was possessed. They get beaten and thrown in prison. Uh, they see the miraculous power of God with a mighty earthquake. And then a, the jailer gets saved along with his household. I mean, massive amount of things. And the point is... is for us, what we're supposed to see in this, again, it wasn't easy for them to make gospel progress. But what was necessary is that every step of the way, that they would be faithful. And he wants us to see that God uses means, even in the midst of suffering, 
to advance his gospel. He uses the means of prayer, the means of preaching the word of God. He uses persecution as a means of strengthening the church and of sharing the spreading the gospel. And it's through these means, even fellowship together, that God brings about progress. And the same thing's true today. God still uses means. If we want to see the gospel continue to advance, we need to be prepared for persecution. We need to devote ourselves to prayer, for preaching, and fellowship together as believers and ministering to one another as a family. Let's pray. Father, we want to be such a church. And we know we can identify these things even within Scripture, and yet, Lord, unless you work in our hearts to make us devoted to these things and to give us such confidence in your truth, Lord, we know we would be shaken. Lord, we failed so many other times that we know unless you give us grace that when trials hit, we will crumble. And so, give us great faith. Cause us to be like a tree that's planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in season. And then no matter what sort of storms and hurricanes and, and, and freezings come against it, that it continues to thrive and bear much fruit even after the most painful winters. Lord, we want to be such a church and just beg for your grace so that we also might be a light to the unbelievers in our own lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.